take your copy of scriptures and turn over to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, our text this morning's sermon. Psalm 45, before we hear from the Lord, let's ask his blessing upon reading and hearing and the preaching of his word. Let's pray once more. Our gracious Father, confess again this morning as we come, this is your word, Lord, and it says that you give us light, and that in your light we see light, Lord. So we pray that we would indeed hear the voice of our Savior, Jesus, as he speaks to us through this word, that we would be changed, Lord, let the meditations of all of our hearts and the instrument this morning be pleasing in your sight. Confess that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. So Lord, we long for it. Give us ten hearts now, we pray, and bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 45. Give your full attention to this is the word of God. The choir, the choir master, according to uh, Lilies and Eskil, the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of man. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your right thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand teach you awesome deeds. <laughs> Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along, and they enter the palace of the king. The place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in, in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. So for the reading of God's word, and you need to add his blessing upon it at this time. <clears throat> well, as we read in the title of this song, it is a love song. A love song. The last three weeks we've seen uh, the sons of Korah give us psalms of lament, uh, crying out in despair. The book of Psalms, of course, gives us the whole variety of emotions, lament, confession, Thanksgiving praise to God. They relate to all the shades and feelings and emotions that we experience in life, including love, like Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a love song. 
it's happiness, celebration, joy. We read of all emotions we would find naturally related to a wedding day. <clears throat> but the wedding we read about in Psalm 45 is not just an or any ordinary wedding, it is a royal wedding. Right? So it's a really big deal. It's written for the king of Israel and for his bride, we read in verse 1. We aren't told who this king was, likely Solomon originally, we can't be certain. Uh, notice the name isn't given in the psalm anywhere. Because at the end, right, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Well, how so if the name's not given, right? This will be important, we'll look at this a little later. But we see in the psalm a love song written for a royal wedding. When we study it and we read it with the complete lenses of the full revelation of God, we see that it points to something far, far greater, far, far more glorious than a royal wedding that took place historically between a king and his bride. It points us to the one who said, remember something greater than Solomon is here. Indeed, we'll see that it points to that king whose throne is forever and ever, who came and laid down his life for his beloved bride to take her back home, to his home. And so let's look down at this psalm, Psalm 45, and see what we have here, and then we'll back up and we'll see where it fits in redemptive history in light of uh, this side of the, the resurrection, right? The New Testament, uh, the lenses that we read, the complete canon, and see what it has to say. This psalm, Psalm 45, has two stanzas, uh, generally, broadly. The first stanza, verses 1 to 6, speaks of the king's praise. And then verses 10 to 17 speaks of the bride's presentation. Right? So the king's praise and the bride's presentation. Uh, first we see, again, in verses 1 to 9, Praise for the king, my heart overflows, says the psalmist, the pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen, like the pen of a ray scribe. You remember the scribes, what they were historically. They were copyists. I mean, they copied documents from one source to another. In ancient times, they would use uh, papyrus or the skins of animals. Uh, they didn't have the luxury of an office depot or paper everywhere like we do. Paper is ubiquitous for us. Uh, but these things were expensive. Vellum was very expensive. And this is so much the case that we take such great care. Alphabets have been created for this reason, to save space, right? You probably all know uh, the Spanish alphabet. Uh, the Enya, right, the end with a little wiggle on top of it. That was just two ends, but they find a way of shortening it to save space. Uh, right? So they use great care with these precious materials. They were meticulous in their work. They would transcribe letter by letter one copy to another. And the psalmist says, that's how I am right now. Ready to give praise to the king like a scribe, ready to write scripture. So after this introduction, he breaks in to praise for the king. And notice what is it that he's praising the king for. Praise the king's godly character. Verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. He's most handsome, not primarily because of his outward looks, because of the character of his heart. Remember Israel's first king, Saul. He was picked because he was the best-looking guy out there. But Saul's heart was what? It was black. He had a black heart. Who was the king after God's heart? Who was the king who had a heart for the Lord? It was David, of course. What do we read about David? He was the, the ruddiest of his, his brothers. Right? He's never praised for his looks, his handsomeness. And our Saul praises the king not only for outward appearance, but for inner beauty. Right? We know that... What it says next, grace is poured out, uh, grace is uh, poured upon your lips, grace is upon your lips. And we see how he is handsome here. 
Grace is poured out. Therefore, God can bless you forever. Grace, integrity are attractive. They're attractive to the godly. And then he says, what, in verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and majesty. And so we know something of this, even in our own time. Right? Queen Elizabeth of England, we all know, who was for most of my parents' generation and, and all of my generation until recently, the queen. She ruled as the queen of England. But now a new king will be coronated soon over that kingdom. And the royal guard the ceremonial, who the dressed in the royal guard, the ceremonial sword, symbolizing he is protector and defender. And so our psalm, similarly, this, the king is set for his wedding in his royal guard, with royal robes, that identify him as the king of Israel. And he has the sword strapped to his thigh. And he goes out in splendor and majesty, this great pageantry of the wedding procession, the royal wedding, girded with the sword as defender of the people of God. So Saul moves on with praises for the king in his uh, victories in battle, right, in verse 4. Your majesty write out the torts for what? For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. See, we see here not, not only what we'd expect in military dealings and conquest, right, truth and righteousness, but meekness right, in regards to military victories. That's interesting. Right? But it makes sense. This is the quality that all of Israel's kings were to have. Meekness. They're to exhibit uh, this meekness, particularly seen, symbolized, at the coronation, right, remember the, 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 uh, the anointing of Solomon. He came riding in on a great stallion. Right? No, not on a great stallion. He came riding in on a donkey. That was the way for the kings of Israel to ride the donkey during this coronation. It was a symbol of lowliness, of humility and meekness. Meekness and, lo and, and humility that the true king of Israel is God. And then he appointed for the people a righteous steward over God's people to serve them. And the king is to lead them in majesty and splendor. And also as a shepherd, right? A shepherd who cares for his people, who comes to the aid of his people to protect and defend and serve them. Right? And we see this. He used to be what? A shepherd king committed to truth and righteousness and meekness. This is what the psalmist is praising him for. Praising him. So there the king goes in this royal procession to get his bride. And all this excitement and celebration and rejoicing is thick in the air. Right? We, we have to understand that the weddings of Israel, that culture in general, and the ancient Near East in general, were not quite entirely like ours. Right? We know this from God's word. Right? What would happen? First, there would be a betrothal. Not a betrayal, a betrothal, right? Vows would be taken. Uh, the parents uh, would arrange it and the families were involved and this betrothal would happen. And even sometimes it would take place before the bride was even of age to marry. It was sometimes set long before. This is when they were engaged to one another. Again, it wasn't like our engagement. Uh, between two people being married, involved the parents planning and, and legal vows would be taken. Often there'd be long periods between this betrothal and the wedding day, uh, after which marriage would be consummated. But imagine the anticipation. 
between each time the betrothal and the actual day, the wedding day. And all the celebration of the two families, of the betrothed couple. The bride on that day would make herself ready with her family and friends made up and made beautiful and ready for her wedding day. And the groom would prepare himself, making himself ready. And he would proceed to his bride's home down the streets in a long procession and family with instruments of joy and song. And he would go and finally arrive to get his long-anticipated bride. And she waited in anticipation so long for him that the day had come. And he soon would be there. He's coming. And he arrives and he takes her from her home, leading her family back now to his home. And there would be a great celebration. Not only for an hour or two, like we usually have, but for days and days and days. Sometimes weeks would go by. That's a lot of celebration. And so understand this, we get now why when we read about uh, the wedding of Cana, this massive amount of wine, uh, that you know, 50 to 60 gallons of water was changed to wine because the celebrations were ongoing. It wasn't a little reception like we have in our culture. And so it's, it's feasting and celebration for a long time. And the psalmist paints this picture for us. The king in regalia, sword strapped to him, going to get his bride and bring her back, blessed by the Lord. And then verse 6 comes. And we think, what happened? It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The center of your kingdom is the center of rightness, you know, of love, righteousness, and hated wickedness. And then, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Right? Who is this speaking of? What happened to the, the bride? What happened to the king? Right? You see the switching of addressing the king, uh, the God, and then to addressing someone else, right? It began, remember, I addressed my verses to the king. We read all the pronouns in this section. They're all, uh, they're all second person singular, right? Your lips, your sword, your splendor, your majesty, your, your. All to the king. And then he says in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What's going on here? Well, if we turn back to our reading, our New Testament reading from Hebrews 1, we find out what it is. Right? Hebrews was written, of course, way down the timeline of history after the coming of Christ, and it was written by an anonymous author, most believed today, uh, to, a Jew, to Jewish Christians who were under persecution and temptation to leave the faith and to return to the old ways of worship and life. And the author is warning them, he's explaining to them, and he's explaining to them how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and that the whole Old Testament ultimately is speaking of Christ, and that he is the great king, great prophet, priest, and king. Right, and so once again, listen to Hebrews. Chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, we appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And it, he holds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels. As his name, he has inherited as much more excellent than theirs. Jesus is greater than all that came before him, greater than all the prophets, 
He's the climax of revelation and the heir of all things. He's the ruler of all, the redeemer of sinners. And then the author of the Hebrews does what? He quotes Old Testament passage, Old Testament passage, referring to Christ, speaking of Christ. And he starts laying out in these passages by verse 5. And then we get to verse 8, and he quotes from our Psalm, Psalm 45. And he says, but, the, but of the Son, right, Jesus, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Right? And you see that? This clear subject of Psalm 45 is the king, but also God is addressed. Who is the king? And who is the God that the psalmist is speaking of? Well, according to Hebrews, they're both Jesus. They're Jesus. We just heard it. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. He goes on, therefore, O God, or God, your God is anointed you, and of the Son. So Hebrews is quoting Psalm 45 and ascribing to Jesus Christ, declaring him to be just that, the Christ, the Messiah, Redeemer of sinners, the one who upholds creation, the one who holds the universe, all that was made by his power. This one person, Jesus, the two natures, God and man. So Jesus, the Son, is more excellent, greater than the angels, he says. Why? Because he is God. We must keep in mind when we read scriptures, when we read the scriptures, that they very often have multiple horizons, multiple focus, focuses, foci. Uh, and the psalmist begins his love song for the king at a royal wedding. But here he looks to the greater king, beyond Solomon, beyond all other kings, all those kings of Israel you remember. Remember what happened? They would they're being anointed, right? be anointed by priests, prophets. And you know the word. It's related to the church. The king would come to be known by that word. The anointed. Mashiach. Messiah. The anointed one. The psalmist looking beyond the earthly kings of Israel. Mashiach. Looking, all those pointing forward to what? To the king of kings. The Messiah. Jesus. Jesus Christ. And he says to that king, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And therefore, God, you, your God has anointed <clears throat> He speaks of the one who came into his creation and took on flesh, a real soul, a real body. He is the true, great, ultimate, and last king. Jesus is the king and God of Psalm 45. So that's the first stanza, the king's praise. Yes, Solomon, yes, other kings of Israel. But ultimately, it's about Jesus, the Messiah. This Jesus who came and taken his bride for himself. And that's where the song goes next. To the bride, at the bride's presentation in verses 10 to 15. From the king to the bride, verse 10, hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. Like the bride is there in her home, in her father's house. She is readying herself. She's made herself ready for the royal procession that is to come for her. And she will leave her father's home. She'll leave her father and her mother and she'll cleave to her husband. 
This is the Lord's prescription. That's what Genesis tells us. They are to leave their homes and to cleave to one another as they begin their new home, their new life and family together as one. She unites herself to him. We speak of the, the union of marriage. He takes her to herself, himself, and she takes his name. That's her new identity. And the Lord tells us in Ephesians 5 how this works out, right? You would do well to read and refresh yourself with this chapter, Ephesians 5, regarding this mutual submission in the earthly marriage. He is to love her. She's to respect him. They're to sacrifice themselves for one another. And all of it, marriage is lived out, is a lived out metaphor to point her to the union of Christ with his church, Paul tells us. Verse 13 goes on. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes of interwoven gold, many colored robes she's led to the king, with joy and gladness. They're led along as they enter the palace of the king. We've all been to weddings. Most of us have been in weddings. If you have done, you've probably seen all the preparations and all the buzz, especially around the bar. <clears throat> Every woman knows. Everyone that she knows is there with her busy around her, making her beautiful. And the excitement and the preparation, it's incredible. But the first wedding that I performed, right before it was the star, I went to check in on the bride, the bridemaids. And I peeked in the room where they were waiting, and it was so beautiful. They were just sweet and praying together, pure, beautiful. And then I checked on where the, the groom and the groomsmen were. Uh, and they were wrestling and throwing balls around, slamming into the walls. Uh, what a contrast, right? Not the picture of the king in Psalm 45. Uh, I love them. They're dear to me. But the brides on their wedding day, such care and beauty, glowing and ready for that day that they've longed and dreamed about their whole lives since they were little girls. That's the picture here in these verses. The king arrives together and takes her back. And we know it. She's beautiful, a beautiful dress flowing behind her as they walk, rejoicing in the procession back to become one in their new home. And this, by the way, is why the brides at weddings walk down the alley. It's a picture of this procession going back. It's a picture of the church. That's where it comes from, going down the aisle ready for her groom. We know the verse. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's where this comes from. The dwelling place of the king and his bride. God has prepared it. The day the bride has longed for and longed for. When they will be one with certainty is coming. It's coming. And what will that place be like? What will that place be like? Revelation 21 continues. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Glory of that, brothers and sisters. Glory. Jesus the King. 
He rode out victoriously for the cause of truth and neatness and righteousness. He did this, went on a donkey when he came into Jerusalem, remember. Riding as king, people waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And his royal wedding procession began there in meekness on a donkey into Jerusalem. In rejection, in the brutality of Calvary, where he gave his life for you and for me, and for all who give their lives to him in faith. Where he wasn't wearing a sword in that first procession, but he rose from the dead and he ascended and he seated at the right hand of the Father where he reigns on his throne in glory. And his king will come again for his bride. And on that day that he does, it will be in splendor and majesty for all to see. And for his family, rejoicing, celebration, and song. And at that time, his sword will be with him to protect his precious bride, eradicating forever his and her enemies, sin and death. And to the home prepared for her, he will bring her to behold God in Christ's beautiful face. And that's what this is all about. King Jesus, the husband. All of history from beginning and all the way forward is driving to that day, that wedding day. The Bible knows of no cyclical history. knows nothing of life, just round and round it goes. History isn't a circle. It's a line. There's a terminus to it. It's God's work to redeem his people, to come as the glorious husband king and take his precious bride united to her to the glorious home that he's prepared for her. If that's not the center and the end goal of all of history and life, what's the point? What is the point? We're just dragging ourselves painfully, meaninglessly through life, obsessing on whatever will take our minds off the suffering that we all go through and the idols to fill the cruciform holes in our hearts. It's meaningless and futile if what the psalm and the gospel speaks of, if the end isn't a wedding. It's been said rightly that because this is true, the whole of human history is a love story. And it is. It's a story of Jesus. God and King coming into his creation for his bride to accomplish for her what she can never do for herself. And knowing this, we know why the name of the king isn't mentioned in Psalm 45. Right? How does it end? In place that your father shall be your sons, you will make them princes in all the earth, and will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. But the New Testament does tell us the name. And that king, Jesus, his name is remembered, is it not? Even today in this room. It's remembered generation after generation after generation. That name that is declared to be above every name. And through the gospel of the Spirit, sons and daughters are multiplied and multiplied through the gospel and will fill the new heavens and the new earth. And this king does all of this by his death in our place on the cross. And he gives us his perfect righteousness, making you acceptable before the Father. He, went, he left a far country far from home, and became like his bride. And he lifted her from the pilt of filth and sin and cleansed her and readied her. He didn't scorn her. He didn't see her shamefully. But he loved her and he suffered for her to the point of death. 
and that flesh that he took on for her, bearing the marks of cruelty and murder for her, will have forever. This is the Lord Jesus. It's what he did for you and for me, his bride whom he loves. Congregation, rejoice in your husband king, the Lord Jesus. He is a faithful husband. He's kind, he is gentle, he cares for you, and he will wipe away all your sin, spotless, even as he will wipe away your tears forever. May we strive in our marriages to reflect this love and sacrifice and care. And may we all remember all that he did to give us life. That goal, that day is coming, dear people. May we long for it in anticipation and praise. And may our lives reflect that husband's love shown to sinners and rebels saved by grace. Rejoice, brothers. He is coming for you, his bride. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we cannot fathom the magnitude of your love for us, the sacrifice of Christ, all history, working to that day, Lord, we praise you for his coming, and we long for his coming again. Rejoice in who you are, Lord, those to believe what you tell us, who we are, united to him, to walk in the of life. Praise you and thank you, Christ. Amen.